Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being with us on the call. We are called at Citizens Church to be a family of servant missionaries. And one of our more distinct identities is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and that is of missionary. Missionary comes from the word apostolos, which just means sent by God. And so we know that God is ascending God. He sent Jesus to the earth, who then subsequently sent us the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit now sends us. John chapter 17, verse 18 says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we've said for years and years as a church that our primary primary vocation then as Christians is that of missionary, okay? We may be paid by Google or a hospital or a tech company or by a school district, or we might be an unpaid stay-at-home parent. But as far as God is concerned, we are first and foremost missionaries. This missionary mindset means that there's no place that I am that I have not been sent, okay? The building that I live in, sent. My local coffee shop, sent. My neighborhood, sent. When God thinks about the people in our city who don't yet know and follow Jesus, he is thinking, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And he has chosen us. We are God's answer to people's need for a daily encounter with the person of Jesus. Jeff Vanderstelt uh, has a book called Saturate. He says this. He says, God dwells with his people and they are missionaries whom he sends into the everyday stuff of life. Jesus intends to saturate the world with his presence through his spirit in his people, his sent ones. Now, this is a great vision, it's beautiful, uh, but it's far easier in speech than in practice. Uh, it's one thing to, to dream about and cast a vision like this, and it's something entirely different to see it come to fruition. I can speak firsthand about that, now having lived in San Francisco for eight and a half years. This task of living as a missionary is not an easy one. Jesus is right in Luke 10 when he says that we would be sent like lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, there's a new documentary on Amazon called The World's Toughest Race. And it's a 417 mile race that teams have 11 days to, compete, to complete. The course is set in Fiji and covers a wide array of geography and challenges. There are five legs total and in just the first leg, teams have to first paddle or sail on a tiny little outrigger for 40 miles. Then they have to travel 12 miles on foot only to paddle again on paddle boards for another 19 miles. After that, they ride mountain bikes for 35 miles in order to reach the first checkpoint, which they have to reach by 4 p.m. on the third day. It's, it's crazy. And this first leg isn't by any stretch the most difficult. There's a section in the fourth leg of the race where the teams have to swim up through a series of pools through water that's around 50 degrees. And so, man, as you're watching, multiple people who are, are completing this part of the race are like on the verge of hypothermia, okay? The race is unbelievable. Several of those competing 
had done multiple Ironmans. They had done, these are triathletes, lots of tough races throughout their lives. But all of them said that not, those, those races were nothing compared to this one. People are getting sick, they get injured, uh, someone gets heat stroke, uh, one team gets really lost because they, they, all they have is their map and they start arguing with one another. It's some pretty great television if you're into that kind of thing. And as the viewer, you sort of see the countenance of the racers gradually go down throughout the race, right? So they start out like pumped, right? They're like, this is gonna be the greatest race of our lives. They're full of expectancy and hope. But then slowly but surely, you see the elements warring against them, these unforeseen challenges. So they sort of begin the race howling like wolves and slowly become much more like lambs. And that kind of illustrates my experience as a missionary in San Francisco. And man, it speaks to the experience of many of the brothers and sisters I've served alongside of, many of whom who have left the city, church planters, missionaries, faith-based nonprofit workers. But as you watch this race, you kind of, you start to get to know these people and they're sharing their stories and you start to see um, that there's kind of a race within the race where a lot of the people racing aren't necessarily there to win it or, or even finish. There's one team, there's a man named Mark Macy, and he's been competing in venture races like this for most of his life. He's now 58 years old, um, but was recently, right before the race, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And he's racing with his son, his grown son, Travis, who grew up watching his dad compete. And originally, Travis was planning on putting together his own world-class team of his peers, and his goal was to win the whole thing. But after he finds out his dad is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he decides instead to compete with his dad, knowing that this might be the last chance he has to race with his dad. And man, as you're watching this story of this father and son, it is precious to see Travis weeping as he talks about his love for his dad throughout this race and how proud he is of him. He said this in an interview after the race. He said, to do this race with my dad is a priceless once in a lifetime experience. And I am far more excited to go out here and race with dad and go slow and try to make it through than I would be if I was racing for the podium. The calling of Jesus to be a missionary in San Francisco in 2020 is far more than any of us bargained for. It forces us to ask the question, like, what am I really here for? A life on mission with Jesus is about the race within the race. But in order to figure it out, we have to keep going. We discover it while we are swimming through 50 degree water and while our brothers and sisters walk by our sides tearfully reminding us that there is something priceless that awaits us. And that is the person of Jesus himself. That is the reason that we are really here. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into Luke 10. Gracious and kind God, we are your followers. We are your servants. We 
we join Isaiah in saying, here am I, send me. Lord, show us the cost to following you to Jerusalem. Show us where to go and what to say. Guide us to those in this city who long for you, Jesus. We sit humbly at your feet this morning, God, to eagerly learn from you. Teach us from your word, which you have lovingly made available to us. Lord, help us to cherish your scriptures, to find life in them. Be with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you can turn to Luke 10 if you have a Bible with you. Last week, Dave reminded us that Jesus is winding down his public ministry. He's headed to Jerusalem where he will go to be crucified. So now his focus is really on his disciples. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. This is the way that he must go. And anyone who who would follow him must also go in this direction. This idea of following Jesus occurred three times in the passage that that Dave preached to us last Sunday. The disciples, like us, still have a ton to learn. And so Jesus is trying to prepare them and us for what life will be like once he is gone. And so in this passage, he wants his disciples to gain some experience telling the world about the good news of the kingdom. Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on this section of Luke, says this. He says, this is what is meant by involvement in the way of Jesus, to come after him. That's 9, 57 through 62, and go before him. That's our passage today. He says to be his followers and to be his heralds. This text in Luke 10, if you've been around citizens for a while, is deeply foundational to the culture and vision of our church. In verse 5, Jesus lays out a very specific strategy for life on mission. He says in verse 5, whatever house you enter... First say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So Jesus says, we are to identify a person he refers to as a person of peace. We've used this language since the beginning of citizens. The word for peace that Jesus uses here is the word irene, which means to join together. It's a word that denotes wholeness. So our task as missionaries is to speak words of wholeness and of peace to the people around us who do not yet follow Jesus. And then look what he tells us in verse seven. He says, go there in their presence, in their house and remain there eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Uh, A pastor named Alex Absalom has this little book called The Viral Gospel, And in it, he teaches through Luke 10. And he says, a person of peace, according to Jesus, is someone who welcomes you, receives you, serves you, you intentionally invest in, 
someone who operates as a gatekeeper to other relationships. They open up relationships with other people to you. So put simply, Alex Absalom says, a person of peace is just somebody who you like and who likes you, okay? We don't need to overcomplicate this. Jesus is saying we should look for low-hanging fruit, people who are already seeking Jesus. Our job is just to find them, okay? Renee has this amazing ability to sell things to people that that many would think are garbage, would consider garbage, okay? The amount of times my wife has taken something from the side of the road and turned a profit on it is absolutely ridiculous. It might be the only way we have financially survived in this city. It certainly was in the first three years we were here. A few years ago, we had a big bundle of chicken wire in our alley. I don't know why we had it. Maybe someone gave it to us. Maybe we bought it for some crazy project Renee was gonna do. And we're cleaning stuff out and we're hauling things away, hauling stuff off to the dumps. And Renee's like, I'll bet somebody would buy this from us. And I'm like, no way, babe. Like nobody wants that. Lo and behold, somebody comes and buys this whole thing of chicken wire for $15, okay? I don't know how she does it. Now imagine how odd it would have been if Renee had gone door to door in our neighborhood trying really hard to just like offload and sell this chicken wire to one of our neighbors. And the neighbor who was most resistant to buying the chicken wire, Renee's like, I'm just gonna keep going back to that house every day, insisting at some point this person would buy it. No, that would be crazy. Like Renee was able to sell the chicken wire because as ridiculous as it might sound, somebody out there wanted some freaking chicken wire and they were willing to spend $15 on it, okay? And Renee knew that. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, sure, most people may not want anything to do with me, but somebody does. Your job is to practice irony, this this speaking of peace, this embodiment of, of wholeness and peace until you find that person that's already searching for me. So let's talk a little bit more about this word irony and what Jesus means. What does it mean when he says to speak words of wholeness, of joining together? He's talking about a true love for others that emerges from his deep love for me that I've experienced. It presumes that we ourselves have been and are being made more whole by the Lord and and so are eager to share that with others. Okay, it's the natural result of a life transformed by the gospel. This type of genuine love though, that results in words of blessing is the very thing that Satan is working extremely hard to keep us from doing. Okay, so we we have barriers that are keeping us from living out this kind of life. So I was, I was thinking about this and reflecting about this this week and asking the Spirit, like, what are some of those barriers for us, for our church, in practicing this irony in San Francisco in 2020? And there's two things that kind of came up that I just wanna, I just wanna call to our attention and want us to be thinking about this morning. One is an increase in social anxiety in believers. Okay, this is brothers and sisters in Christ who profess to love and follow Jesus, 
but who increasingly can't handle being in social settings um, very long, if at all, particularly new settings. Okay, so I want to kindly charge us to recognize that God designed us for relationships with people. He designed us with the capacity of relating to lots of people, people we know, people we don't know, large groups of people, small groups of people, people who feel safe and people who don't feel safe. Okay, our our Myers-Briggs personality type and our Enneagram number are helpful tools to lead us towards wholeness in Christ, but should never be a license to say, well, I just don't like people very much, or I just don't really like to be around people, or I don't enjoy relating to people, okay? I have met a discouraging number of Christians over the year, over the years who have referenced their personality as a reason to not be with people, when actually the root issue is that they're struggling with social anxiety. Okay, so if you are socially anxious, and that's keeping you from meeting non-believers and speaking of words of wholeness to them, I just want you to know that Jesus is eager to bring healing to that difficult part of your life and story. I encourage you to name that, to recognize that, and begin allowing the Lord to do a healing work in your life. I'm not saying it to shame you or condemn you. I'm saying I have my own struggle in this area where I'm like, man, I I feel anxious or I feel like I don't know what to say or I don't know how to act or this is taking energy from me. And yet Jesus is calling us here. I've called you to go and be in the presence of other people. A second thing that I think is a barrier and something I've been thinking a lot about lately is the idea of reciprocity in relationships. I was reading a post from a Christian counselor uh, specifically who uh, does work with children a few months back, and they were talking about how important it is for children developmentally to learn reciprocity. It's this ability to both give and receive in relationship, and in part is, is truly just the ability to ask and answer questions in a conversation with another person so that our interactions are not one sided. Now I get to uh, I get the luxury these days of listening to most of August's uh, second grade class because it's happening right in my living room, right? And so, um, man, her her teacher is having the kids go, get into break breakout rooms in Zoom just to practice this, just to practice reciprocity. Now it seems like a given, like this should be. Uh, something that's true of all people. But man, I have experienced many adult Christians who are underdeveloped in their capacity for reciprocity in relationships. I'll spend an hour or longer with somebody asking them questions about their life, listening to them speak about what is difficult, what they're struggling with, and never be asked a single question about about myself. And sometimes I'll think, oh, that's just because I'm a pastor and people kind of expect me to give to them. And so I I get that. But man, I experienced that a ton in a lot of my relationships in San Francisco with not believers. It's one of the biggest relational challenges that I experience here with both believers and non-believers. And so I would just ask you this morning, like, what about you? Do you reciprocate in relationships? 
Are you able to ask meaningful questions to other people about themselves with a true desire to know them and love them as Christ does? Okay, I think as we look at what Jesus is saying here, a love for people coupled by the ability to live with reciprocity, I think that is the irony that Jesus is calling us to. It's a mark of Christian maturity and the calling of a life on mission. So Jesus tells us to identify people of peace. Okay, these are people that welcome us, that receive us, serve us, we intentionally invest in. They then operate as gatekeepers to other relationships. So how does this work? Like, what does this look like? The person of peace that is one who is most dear to me in uh, San Francisco in our time here is our neighbor, Michelle. I've shared a lot about her over the years. Um, When we first moved to the city, to our neighborhood, our neighbor, Michelle, who lived next door to us, her husband had tragically died, passed away. And so we just went to her house to bring flowers, to express our sadness over what had happened. We spoke words of blessing over her seeking to participate in God's desire to make Michelle whole again, knowing, of course, that nothing we could say could achieve that. And she just, man, she welcomed us. She received our words of care for her. And so we just, we had asked her, hey, is there any way that we can serve you or care for you? And so um, she kind of offhand mentioned that she had this storage unit up in Sonoma that she needed to, to have emptied. And so we got a truck and a trailer and drove up there and just like took care of the whole thing for her. And she was blown away by this act of service. So then she wanted to reciprocate this in our relationship. The very first event that we ever had as a church was a barbecue that we threw for our whole neighborhood. And the goal was to create a space of blessing for our neighbors, for people to engage with one another. And so Michelle did a ton of work to help us put that event on. So we would invest in Michelle's life and she was investing in our life. She's building relationships with our kids. She opened up our home to to us in Sonoma. The first pastor's retreat that we ever had was up in Sonoma at Michelle's home. Michelle became like a gatekeeper to us for all the relationships in our neighborhood because she had lived on the street for so long, she was able to introduce us to many other people on our street. A few years ago, we had to move out of our house uh, because our landlord wanted to move their parents into the unit. And man, we recall Jesus' words here in Luke 10 where he says, do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So man, here we are like potentially being displaced. We feel like, man, God, you've given us people of peace and a place of peace. We didn't want to leave the street that God has called to us um, because our presence in our neighborhood wasn't just about whether we had enough space or all the amenities that our family required for living in San Francisco. We had a real sense of calling to the people on our block. And so one of our neighbors, a different neighbor, heard that we had to move. And so they started scheming like, man, are there, are there other units available in our, in our neighborhood? And so it turned out that there was a house, the house we live in now, opening up just four doors down. 
This was more evidence to us from the Lord that he had called us to these people and this place of peace, that there was still more food for us to eat that they had prepared for us. There were still acts and words of healing for us to do in the lives of our neighbors and that there was still yet more declaration of the kingdom of God coming near for us to make in the lives of these people. And so if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, I would say you have your own unique version of this story. That God has placed people in places of peace in your path. People who have welcomed you, received you, served you. People you have invested in. People who have operated as gatekeepers to other relationships. Okay, I can, I can look at the screen and see a bunch of you and just, I, I know your people of peace. I know your places of peace. I know the people that God has called you to, that, that God has placed before you. If you are having a hard time identifying those people, it could be because you have forgotten and you no longer remember that your primary vocation as a Christian is one as missionary. It could be because you aren't speaking irony through consistent presence and reciprocity. It could be because you haven't stayed in one place long enough to experience each of these dynamics. It could be that you are a picky eater and won't receive what they have offered you. It could be that you are afraid to or unwilling to ask them if they need healing. Do you need prayer? Is there any way I can pray for you? Is there any way I can ask for a healing on your behalf? It could be that you're too scared to say, Jesus has come near to you. The kingdom is here. And so whatever barrier you might have, would you bring that to the Lord this morning? Would you just admit it in your heart right now and say, Lord, I think I need to own this. Like I, I've struggled to fulfill this call. And would you, would you say to him again, Lord, I, I want to take up the calling to be a missionary where you have sent me. Now, it's tempting to do what I have done in this text this morning. And that is to focus on the strategy of a life on mission before doing the work of preparation. Okay, I don't know about you but I'm not a good preparer for anything. I would much rather learn by playing the game than by reading the instruction manual. But like a difficult race, preparation is everything. Let's go back to the beginning of Luke 10 and look at verse one. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. 
Okay, Jesus says, go in pairs. Don't go alone. Okay, so when you think about a life on mission, do not be picturing yourself alone being, bringing words of peace and blessing to your non-believing friends, neighbors, coworkers. You always need to have an imagination for who else God is sending with you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It says, don't go alone. It says, travel light. Don't bring more than you need. Don't over-prepare with things that are not important, okay? So I think we do prepare to live a life on mission, but a lot of times we prepare with the wrong things. I think many of us think that we are not prepared to share the gospel in San Francisco, not because we don't have enough money, clothes, or shoes, but because we don't have enough knowledge, charisma, or rhetorical skills, okay? We think, what if they challenge me? What if they reject me? What if they hate me for my faith? What if this affects my job? What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Jesus would say, hey, these are all worldly concerns. These are not the concerns that I have for you. Then Jesus says, greet no one on the road. Okay, he's referring here to the custom of the day where lengthy greetings and time spent with people on the road were considered proper for any traveler. Okay, he's saying obligation to, to this custom, this worldly custom, is just a distraction. Okay, don't, don't let anyone distract you from what you have been called to do. The most important thing he tells them by far, though, in order to prepare is to pray earnestly. Okay, this reminds me of Paul's exhortation. If you remember my sermon from several weeks back in Romans 15, 30, where he calls us to labor in anguish, in prayer, pleading with God on behalf of those who do not yet know him. Without prayer, and I can speak to this firsthand, without prayer, all efforts to share the gospel are in vain. Okay, now, what is the reason that Jesus gives as to why the disciples should pray earnestly? He says in verse two, he says the reason they should pray is because there are not enough laborers to do the work. Okay, so the number of disciples here that Jesus send out, sends out is really significant. If you remember in Luke chapter nine, First, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. Now, he expands that number to 72. Some, of the tr some translations have 70 people, others have 72. Now, numbers are really important in the ancient world, okay? Jesus doesn't just sort of like roll the dice to determine how many disciples he will call, right? He specifically chooses the 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He's making a statement that he has chosen a new Israel to carry out the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham to bless the world. Similarly, Jesus intentionally chooses this 70 or 72 number here to make another statement. Now, scholars are in disagreement here about which number 70 Jesus is referring to. Some argue that it's a reference to the number of family members that Jacob had when he leaves the land of Canaan and comes to Egypt. You remember during, during the famine, after Joseph comes to Jacob or to Egypt, all of Jacob's family comes and there's 70 there. 
And then there's other scholars who would say, no, this is referring to the 70 elders that are part of the nation of Israel when God delivers his people out of Egypt. Okay, so people think it could be those two. But there's another place in the Old Testament where this number 70 is found, and it's in Genesis chapter 10, when all of the nations of the world at the time are listed. Okay, and in that section of Genesis 10, in the original Hebrew, there are 70 names listed, But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are 72 references made, okay? So I really, I like this view because I think it helps kind of explain the discrepancy in numbers in the translation in the New Testament. But also, it makes sense to me because I think Jesus wants us to see here that his disciples, the number of disciples he's sending out represents all the nations, that he's sending out his disciples now to all the earth to, to proclaim the gospel. Now, if we do some basic math here, he sends them out in pairs. Okay, and so that means they're not going to 70 places, okay, which would represent the sort of 70 nations. They're only able to visit half that number. Okay, so I, I think that that's built into and helps explain Jesus saying to pray for more labors. He's saying, hey, I know that you and future disciples, people like us in 2020, are going to be under-resourced for the work that you are called to, which is going to force you into a dependency in prayer that you otherwise wouldn't have. Okay, so as we As we think about San Francisco, as we pray for our city, we need to be praying in those terms. That like there's only like half the people that we need. The church is under-resourced. Man, my prayers over the last couple years, just as a pastor, church planter in San Francisco, my prayers mainly have been right out of this text. Like, God, please send us more disciples. Please send us more mature disciples men and women of God who aren't just coming here to sort of like consume and take and and be fed. Like, man, I just want to find a church that'll feed me. Or they're not sort of like, man, I want to to, um, live out social activism in the name of Jesus, but not really for the sake of the gospel. I've prayed and pleaded, God, would you send us men and women who are committed to the work of establishing your kingdom in a city that largely rejects you? Like, imagine if our church was twice the size it is now, what we could do. We need to pray that God would multiply our number exponentially and that he would multiply every other faithful, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church in San Francisco. There's a scarcity of kingdom resources. We need to plead with the Father. We need to ask the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. Okay? One of, our, one of the challenges is scarcity of resources, but another is just, just flat-out rejection. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say this, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Karazin. 
Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. This, this passage breaks my heart. If you remember in Luke, remember earlier in Luke when I preached that sermon on having Capernaum hearts rather than Nazareth hearts, Jesus had gone to Nazareth and they had rejected him. Then he goes to Capernaum and everybody receives him. So the whole town of Capernaum gets healed. We find out later they didn't stay with the Lord. They like totally fell away and rejected him in the end. It's tragic. He says, you'll be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is heavy, man. This is really heavy. This is not a fun verse to preach. You're probably not like super pumped to to show your non-believing friend this text in the scriptures. Jesus tells us though that at some point we need to be able to move on with our conscience clear, having done all we could to share the gospel. Okay? It's no coincidence that none of the cities mentioned in this, in this text right here are still standing today. Instead, they are literally a pile of rubble on the northern coast of Galilee. You can go there and see it today. And so, man, I grew sad reading this this week. Like, I was like, Jesus, how do you feel about San Francisco? Are they on this list? And, I, and it just it, it made me realize, like, we have to pray for our beloved city. Look in the Old Testament when God would come with wrath like towards the nation of Israel and Moses would pray on behalf of the people saying, no, Lord, please don't, don't be done with them. Continue to give them grace. Listen, condemnation is real. God's judgment is real. It's unpopular. It's not a fun truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. I am thankful for this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- reach repentance. And so, man, we, we have to pray for God's patience to endure in our city. I mean, I can say honestly that living on mission in San Francisco and trying to lead others to do the same has been some of the greatest rejection I have ever personally faced. It has been very difficult for me not to grow cynical and to quit. I was telling Renee the other day, just like two days ago, how much work Jesus has done to show me over these past eight and a half years, just how much... I am still doing all of this for myself instead of Jesus. Okay, I don't, I don't have this long list of success stories of people of peace giving their life to the Lord. In the past two years, I have lamented often that I don't, I don't even really feel like I have a lot of people of peace. Um, I, I have felt like I'm not really living faithfully on mission the way that I did when I first moved here, that I, I lost a, a vigor and a love for mission. And man, it, as I reflect back, I can see that the first several years of living a life on mission were much more about strategy than they were about earnest prayer. And I think that's a lot of why I have felt so burned out. And so m- more recently, my prayers have been much more like, Lord, you're going to have to bring the people of peace to us 
because we don't have it in us to go out and find them. Like, I, I don't have any more gas in the tank, Lord. You're gonna have to f- fill me up and send me out in a fresh way. And man, I have to say, like, praise be to God. He has, he has faithfully answered this prayer. I've shared with, with a couple of you that um, since COVID, uh, the people who live right behind us decided to go out and clear their backyard. So all of a sudden, uh, we realized there's no wall between our house and theirs. And all of a sudden, we realized, oh, they have kids our uh, same age as Keen. And um, they started building this cool friendship. And we met their parents and have started to build this cool friendship. And they invited us up north to Napa to a friend of theirs who has a vineyard to pick grapes with them. And they've now connected us with all these other families in the neighborhood, some of whom are families from our school that we already knew. And, and so these folks, man, they bear all the marks of a person of peace mentioned here in Luke 10. And so it's kind of cool to see just how a little different we are as we approach this new relationship than we did our, our original people of peace in our neighborhood. We have more maturity, okay? We can say, man, we did nothing but pray. We have much more sober expectations. So this, this brings a, a restfulness, a, a higher degree of relaxation and self-awareness. Um, we're much more aware that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and not us. Okay, And, and so, yeah, we, we have still had to fight a lot of cynicism in these relationships. Okay, I was thinking how... You can forget that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and try to do all the work yourself, which has totally been me. But you can also forget that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and say, so what's the point of planting seeds at all? Okay, we can't fall to one side or the other of these. This process of sanctification that that myself and Renee have been going through as we have sought to obey Jesus' calling to live as missionaries, that is the race within the race. It's the reality that Jesus has always seen himself as the missionary to my own heart. Okay, Dave's gonna to preach more about this next Sunday, but I wanna look quickly at, in closing at what happens when the disciples return back to Jesus after they've been out on mission. Let's, let's look at Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. But then look what he says here. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so when the disciples return, they're like pumped because it turns out they've actually had quite a bit of success. But notice that Jesus turns their attention away from success of their mission toward that which is most important. He says, it is great that you did well healing and casting out demons. But what is most important is that by going and doing what I have commanded to you, you can be certain that you are indeed mine, that you belong to me, that you're ready to follow me on the way to Jerusalem, to the place that leads to death and then resurrection, and therefore your names are written in heaven. He said, what's most important is that you belong to me. Okay, so when I 
commit myself to everyday missional living. I'm setting myself up to receive Jesus' mission to love me and know me, to speak words of peace and blessing to me, to give his life to me, that he is working through the normal and mundane stuff of my life. So every time I put on Jesus' sandals and walk in his shoes toward Jerusalem, I'm reminded that every day he gets up and straps those same sandals on, he comes over to my house, he brings irony to me. And so Jesus always prefers to reveal himself to us while revealing himself through us. We are both his followers and his heralds. Let us not rob ourselves of the experience of Christ by not going and being sent by him to proclaim the kingdom and the gospel to the people in our lives. I was thinking a disciple of Christ living on mission at the end of their life may say something like this. To do this race with my dad is priceless. A once in a lifetime experience. And I am far more excited to go out here and race with dad and go slow and try to make it through than I would be if I was racing for the podium. Jesus is the prize. That is the race within the race. Let me pray for us. God, I pray for every non-believing friend, neighbor, coworker, family member, spouse, who you have placed in our lives, who need to know that there is a God who created them in your image, that despite their sin, despite their active rebellion against you, you have nothing but grace for them, that Jesus, you offer them salvation even now. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would empower and equip your church, that you would send us out to live lives on mission, and that through that process, we would get more of you, Jesus, that we would realize you are on a mission to save us, that you love us, that you speak blessing and peace and wholeness over us. God, would you continue to make us whole? God, would you continue to help us in the, in the places that keep us from feeling like we have it in us to go out and do the work you've called us to do? Would you bring healing? Lord, we love you and we worship you today. Amen.